Imagine if each morning when you wake up, you're smiling and looking forward to your day, knowing you are happy even while you're dealing with grief and loss. The Grief and Happiness Podcasts inspires, comforts, and supports you with each new episode. I'm Emily Zerothret, welcoming you to explore with me your life of endless possibilities. Aloha. Welcome to our podcast today. I'm so happy to see you and I'm happy to have Jeff Johnston here with me today to share his story with us and see where that leads. So Jeff, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, first, aloha from Iowa. (laughs) (laughs) No, probably the main flyover state, you know, people wave when they fly over our state. Yeah, I, I'm honored uh, and um, humbled to be on on your show, and uh, hopefully we can navigate through a lot of different topics that I know your followers and listeners would be interested in hearing us talk about. Well, I, I live in Iowa, and my previous life, before I uh, had these opportunities given to me, uh, I was a financial advisor. I started my own company at age 23, uh, worked it up to age 50, and had... Uh, Nine advisors in my firm, seven full-time staff, pretty much that goal that you aspire to make when you're younger and kind of reached every goal I wanted to make at age 50. I I was really, I would consider myself at the top of the mountain for my life. I um, went through every checklist, did all the traveling, been to Europe, you know, happily married, three kids, no debt. I mean, just pretty much what I really wanted to be like when I was 50. And then on October 4, 2016, everything just changed. And now it's, you know, five years later, and I, I'm a new human being. I've, I've evolved into this, this different person. And I can honestly say a, a better person uh, than I was before all this happened. So my passions now, I have, a, I have a quote that I use every day, Emily, that drives me. It's, it's on our t-shirts. It's, it's, it's basically the the backbone or the spine of what I'm trying to embody. And that's that living undeterred mindset. And this quote goes like this purpose becomes passion when it gets personal. And you have to say that a couple of times purpose becomes passion when it gets personal. You're living proof of that. You and I were talking before the show. I asked what started your podcast and you talked about your grief and, and, th- and things like that. So your podcast was born out of something chaotic, and and so was mine. I, I was not doing podcasts pre-COVID and before my life. You know, uh, the second part of what happened in my family. So yeah, I mean, a lot of what I do today, Emily, is born out of chaos, which is proof that it can be done. Yes, it can. We're we're stronger than we think we are. I know mm-hmm. I turned out to be. So can you tell us a little about that chaos and and what's come from it? Yeah. So that day, October 4th, 2016, was pretty much like every other day. My wife was at home getting ready to go to a golf tournament. My son, my middle son, Ian, who is now currently a golfer at the University of South Dakota. He's a division one golfer. Uh, He's been working his whole life to play college golf. And so we were getting ready. He was in high school. Ian was a sophomore, so he was um, he was 15 at the time. Roman was 13, and our oldest son, Seth, was 23. And that day was a beautiful fall day in Iowa, and I have Ian's golf clubs getting out of my trunk like millions of parents do every day. They, they get their kids ready to play youth sports. And so this was a pretty big day because it was the day of districts, and our high school never made districts, uh, made state in golf. So 
it was an important day for our family because Ian was kind of the, the best golfer on the team at the time. He was the number one player. And I opened up the trunk of my car and Ian was getting ready and talking to his teammates. And there was the excitement in the air, you know, coaches getting everything. It's, I used to say it's like herding cats. You know, a coach is trying to get all these kids together for a high school tournament. Moms are dropping off. Dads are dropping off food. Lots of excitement in the air. It was just a beautiful day to be alive. And 630 in the morning, my phone rings. And I looked at the phone. I recognized the number. And I thought, yeah, this this at 630 in the morning on a Tuesday, this isn't going to be probably a good call. And I picked it up. And at that moment, I, as I say today, I joined a club that I didn't ask to join and one I can never leave. And that's a club of a deceased child. And we've, our son, our oldest son, Seth was found dead in hotel room overdose, which now we say poisoned uh, by fentanyl in his heroin. And my life just came to a screeching halt at that moment. And I write in my book how everything just froze, but it felt like a hundred years at the same time. And so many things went through my mind. And what I didn't do, what I always did was hugged Ian and said, love you. See you on the course, bud. I didn't say that. I just turned, got my car and I thought, how in the heck am I going to tell my wife our, our son is dead? And Ian had to think at 16, you know, where's dad? You know, where's my, where's my biggest fan, you know? And he got to his tournament and mom and dad weren't there. And I have to only think that that really had to traumatize Ian for that day. And, and as he got older, events like that, that have happened to him have to be very traumatic. But I got home, told my wife what happened and, you know, things just unraveled horribly. My dad's a retired doctor. So I called my dad. I said, you know, dad, what do I tell the boys? You know, I, it's one thing to tell my wife, but you know, what, what do I tell my boys that their older brother's dead? And my dad was very clear. He's a very pragmatic human. He's a doctor. He said, tell him the truth and then shut your mouth. Mm. And my dad knows I like to talk. So I sat the boys down. I said, boys, I got some really bad news. And they both looked up at me, you know, what do you got to say, dad? You know? And I said, your brother's dead. And I didn't say anything. And then after about 10, 15 seconds, my middle son, Ian said, how do you die, dad? Drugs? I mean, just like on cue. And I said, yeah, Ian, he died of drugs. And then I paused for a minute. And I thought, I thought in my mind, all right, here you go, dad. This is your chance. This is, this is what you've been training for as a father. This is that moment that you can't mess up. You have to take this and make it the best life lesson you possibly can for your kids. And so I got up from the couch and I said, boys, <laughs> this is a chapter in my book. It's called The Two Roads. I said, boys, we have two roads to go down. We have one road of anger, despair, and hatred, and we'll become alcoholics and addicts ourselves. Or we have a road of inspiration and motivation. And this could be the single greatest event in our lives to make our lives better and those around us. I'm on the second road. I ask you to join me. And I don't know where I came. I don't know where this came from. I didn't rehearse it. It rolled off my tongue like I'd been rehearsing it. And the boys definitely followed my lead. They've done some heroic things that I talk about in my book to honor, honor their brother. I know I'm talking most of this so far, but I need to kind of put things in context before we move on. And so after Seth died, my wife and I both literally tried to drink ourselves under the table. I was an alcoholic since eighth grade. Uh, my wife's been a social drinker her whole life, 
but our alcoholism really revved up when Seth was going through his addiction issues. Cause we had about five or six years of him having substance abuse issues. He actually was in prison two months before he died. He got released and then he got into heroin and was dead. But my wife and I just, I stayed home. I quit working. I mean, I own my company, so I didn't have to go into work, but I just drank myself under the table every day. And finally, in December 24, 2017, about 14 months after Seth died, I woke up, Emily, and I said, that's it. I'm done. I'm done. As an alcoholic my whole life, I just said, I'm tired of being tired. I was 190 pounds at that time. Um, today, I'm 149. Quitting drinking has been the easiest thing I've ever had to do in my life. Uh, as this is coming from an alcoholic, I, I don't, I don't play the narratives. I don't call myself an alcoholic. I guess I don't say I'm sober because that implies I'm in a struggle. I, I don't play any narratives that society wants me to play when it comes. I just choose not to drink. I mean, I try to make my brain that dumb to not play all these narratives. And so, and my wife though, just, uh, didn't work out for her. Um, after Seth died, she, it was, as I like to say, Emily, it was a mountain that some people are just too high to climb. And, on June 29th of last year, I buried my wife of 21 years from alcoholism at the age of 46. And I've, I stand here today, can honestly tell you, I'm a better man than, than I was at that time. And I'm not a bitter human. All this death has really given me great perspective on my life. And so I write about that. I talk about it. I don't think I'm any different than anybody else. I think I look at things differently. But I think I have the same emotions as you do, as all your listeners do. But I've got some foundations down that I can talk about with you that I practice every day that I think really helps people or can help people deal with the inevitable chaos that's coming our way, all of us. I mean, there's, there's never been a human that's been able to avoid something as organic as death. I mean, it's, it's, it's coming. We just don't know when. It doesn't go in the right order. Just like loving, just like loving somebody, you can find the love of your life after your third marriage. You know, I found the love of my life, my first marriage, and she's no longer here, but that doesn't mean I can't meet somebody later. And so I I've got a really odd perspective that has worked for me, but that's my story. And I have some other really neat things that I can talk about as we navigate through this, but vulnerability has really been a great weapon in my arsenal and being on a show like yours and talking about these things really keeps me going. It's like my drug. I totally understand what you're saying. I was, I, I felt like I was whole and I was good and everything was all right before um, my husband's died and went through a period after the first husband died and finally got to the point where I, I thought I have to live my best life. Mm hmm it wouldn't do him any honor for me not to do that. And mm -hmm. I have to take care of myself. And I, fortunately I did that because I could have just as easily taken that other road. Mm -hmm. And I was shocked when I met my second, next husband because I, I had no intention of getting married again. I thought I was fine on my own. And, and nor do I. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, the intention wasn't there, but boy, when the time came, it was right. And, right. and I'm, grateful for that opportunity. And we had a, right. a wonderful life together. And I can't say things were easier the second time around because it's hard every time. And after he, he died, I was like, okay, now what do I do? <laughs> and that's what led me to, to find ways to help other people. And that sounds kind of like how it ended up with you ultimately too, is, is that through 
what was pain for you, you've been able to find the, the joy and comfort in helping other people. Yeah, and it hasn't been, it's been a lot of work. Mm-hmm. I'm a, I like to read, I listen to podcasts, and a book I read about a year after Seth died was Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, which to me is the greatest book I've ever read. And I read it and it was really good. And then there was this sentence I saw that just changed my life. Uh, and I've always thought of myself as an optimistic, you know, I was an athlete. I was, I, I have attention deficit, which I think is another whole size set of it's a, that's a superpower. I, I love to be hyper-focused on things. It gets in my way, but it's almost comical. And I read that book and I came across this, this sentence, suffering is my opportunity. And I just, it jumped out of the pages, like a, like it just hit me in the face. And so I thought that that's the greatest sentence I've ever heard in my life. Suffering is my opportunity because we, we live in this, this complete victimization uh, mindset world we live in. And so I, I came up with my own phrase and this is what I've coined now. Pain is unavoidable, but suffering is a choice. And so when I go around and we give my presentations and, and, and in, in 40 days, I go around the United States in an RV to every single state for 95 days. I'm going to talk about this and I want to raise a million dollars for mental health. I'm going to talk about the, the, the fact that, that, that pain is unavoidable. So you lose somebody. You, you can't, you're human. You're, you're going to be in pain. But the length of time, the duration that you suffer, how you suffer, it, it, you really have 100% control over that. I really believe that. I don't think suffering is a disease. Like they want to say alcohol is a disease. That's fine. But suffering certainly isn't a disease. You could have predispositions, like maybe you are easily depressed or you're manic depressive and you're, you have some things that aren't going to help in your suffering, but you certainly have a choice of how you want to suffer. And so I've always embraced that my whole life. And so, I, again, I was given these opportunities, but I have a sentence I will give you, Emily, that I think I think can help everybody that follows you, that watches what I do every time I give a presentation I tell the people watching and listening, you got to write this down and how you answer this question will really dictate how you will live the rest of your life. And here's the question. Do things happen to you or do things happen for you? And I think if you, if you learn to have that sentence in your brain all day long while you're going through your day and something happens, you ask yourself, all right, did this happen to me? In other words, I'm a victim. You know, why, why, why did this happen to me? Why me? Why now? What was me? You know, pity and sympathy is what I'm looking for people. Or did my son and my wife die for me? And it's hard. It's hard because it sounds ridiculous to think how in the heck could somebody die for you? But if you don't think of it that way, then the only other way is think of it as a victim. So I refuse to be a victim. And, you know, I lost my mom uh, four months ago at age 89, the day after I put my cat down to 16 years. So, you know, I've had this black cloud over me, but I don't, it's not a black cloud. To me, it's, it's, it's an umbrella. It's, it's a protecting me from myself and learning coping mechanisms to become a better human being. So, you know, I talk about dying in the wrong order. I want son, wife, mom. I, I mean, should be the other way around and never your kids. But here I am at, now I'm 55. I turned 56 in a couple of weeks. And I am arguably at the best emotional place I have ever been in my entire lifetime, even before all this happened. 
because I didn't appreciate what I had when I had it. And now my relationships are so much better. They're so much more authentic. They're so much, they're so more intimate. There's no more fluff and pretentiousness. I'm not going around with a fake mask on myself anymore because I really don't care what people think about me. And that's how now I want to live the next, the next 40 years of my life um, being the best person that I can be. And I'm, I'm not a victim. I, I refuse uh, sympathy and pity. And someone asked me sometime, one time about that. And I said, no, if I, if I want pity, I'll go buy another dog. I already have two dogs. I'll just get a third one. Uh, what I'm looking for is empathy, compassion, love, and strength. I'm looking for strength. And so I feed off of that like a vampire. So strong people, I get stronger. But if you're a negative or a toxic person, I have no time for you. And I've just got myself surrounded by people that are very supportive of me. They're very in love with me. They're very supportive. Uh, and, and that's kind of where I want to spend my time going forward is around people. Now, we all have problems. I mean, I, I've, I've had some deepest, darkest times a human can have and still be here. And I talk about those in my writing and in my podcast. But yeah, so that, that's kind of my mindset, how I do things. And I'm still learning. I, I don't think I know, I know a whole lot about this stuff. I'm probably an expert in life experiences, but I'm certainly not an expert clinically. You know, it's so interesting listening to you talk. I Just yesterday, I had a big, long talk with somebody about Viktor Frankl's uh, book. Yeah, I, I just I read it a long time ago, but I read it again just maybe a year ago because I thought this is going to resonate me, with me differently now than it did then. And it, mm -hmm. it did. And the whole idea of being a, a victim, you know, he, he was so much not a victim, like like the people in the, the world right now that are standing up for their country in, right. in, a, in a war that nobody asked for. Right. They're not victims. They're, I don't know, heroes. They're, right. they're taking what was handed to them and making it be into the best it can be under the circumstances. And I, I think that that's kind of what you and I do, that mm -hmm. I'm, I'm so grateful to have this opportunity to be helping people and giving them things to think about, and things that they can see they, they uh, can do to help themselves and what they don't have to believe. They don't have to believe they're a victim. I could sit around and cry all day long because I had two husbands die and a lot of right. my sister. And, you know, I, I could do that, but would that serve me? No. So right. why should I do that? But I can serve other people by showing them paths to happiness and, and ways to live their best lives. And I'm grateful for the opportunity to do that. Yeah, I think... I'm a stoic philosopher. So this stoicism is always, even back to college days, I liked the pragmatic, realistic reasoning type thought behind stoicism. So I'd kind of buried it for a long time and I got it. I was very big into what I call capitalism, you know, being successful, making money, driving a nice car, blah, blah, blah. And then you have the carpet pulled out from under your feet. And then I kind of resorted back to some of these stoic philosophers, started reading more in stoicism, Ryan Holiday's book, the Obstacles, the Way is a great book about you know, his his same philosophies, taking Stoicism from the past and putting it into modern times, I guess. And so Stoics talk a lot about reframing. And man, what a powerful concept. And even the concept of negative visualization, which is the idea where, you know, you have a child that's five years old and you go into their room at night 
and you just sit there by their bed and you look at them sleeping and you think, now this is not what people are going to, people are going to think I'm off my rocker, but this is what a stoic would do is if you died today, I need to look at you from that perspective that I, you're live right now. And I'm very grateful for your life. And this could be the last time I ever see you. And the Stoics practice this negative visualization. I wrote a whole blog on this because it's counter to what we are kind of taught as we grow up through our families. We don't want to think about getting on a plane and having a crash. Well, you know what I do? I make those calls and make those texts when I'm in the airport, the people I care about and love because that plane may crash. I'm not superstitious. So but I, I like to be very grateful for the opportunities I have that, I, you know, I have two of my boys still here, two of my three. You know, I know I know dads and moms that have lost their only child, or I know one dad that lost his only two sons to overdose. Hmm. So who am I to be Mr. Pity Party? You know, who am I to feel sorry for myself? You know, I've got so much going for me that I've got two great kids. And my son, Seth, when he died, his, his uh, three weeks after he died, his daughter was born. Mm. So I have this beautiful granddaughter that right when I'm done with your show, I'm going to drive over to grandma's and pick her up. And she's spending the weekend with me. Oh, how wonderful. So I'm, I'm lucky in so many regards. I don't, I don't have time to be, I'll say this very cautiously, but I don't have time to be depressed. I don't have time to be negative. I don't have time to be sad and down. I just don't. And now I do, I do get down and, I hate the word depression. So I'm not, I'm not going to label me as depressed, but I do have depressive moments. That's how I like to present that. Um, I know, I know depression is a real thing. I certainly understand it. I've never had it, but I've had very depressive moments where I've been at the abyss, you know, peering over the edge, <laughs> wondering what it'd be like if I jumped uh, and I didn't, but I've also been at the bottom of the abyss on my back, looking out, knowing I can't go any further. So I've been on both sides of the abyss and it's not a place I want to go. So I have coping mechanisms that I have to do every single day. And some of those are meditation. Some of those is no TV. I don't watch any TV. If I do, it's literally a British crime drama on Netflix. You know, I just, I have no time to watch any negative toxic agendas. Uh, I can get my information from some of the really good podcast people I listen to. In a short amount of time, I can get all the all I need to know on Trump and all this other stuff, and it just doesn't interest me because it just makes me angry and negative, and I just don't want to do that. So, meditation, toxic relationships, toxic media, reading, writing, my podcast, meeting people like you, having really engaging conversations—that's my therapy. And if I take shortcuts, I run the risk of losing my life. I, I understand that, and that's that's one gift that I've realized that that I have in not having a husband now is that I'm, I'm okay. I'm fine. I'm happy. I actually am happier than I ever have been, which mm -hmm. sounds really weird. And sometimes I say that to people and they say, how did you do that? You, you've had not to me. <laughs> it doesn't sound, sound weird to me at all. No, it's, it's, I think it's a way we're meant to be and, and we can choose that. And I have no, don't know that I even use the word, depressed in any way was related to me but I do have moments there's uh, like a song that Ron and I had that boy if that comes on it's gonna make me stop <laughs> just like that <laughs> yeah yeah there there are certain things somebody could say and it uh, sometimes just kind of takes my breath away but at the same time uh when I 
take another breath. I think, wow, I am so grateful for the time we had together and for all the lessons that I learned in, in my relationships. They, they were just wonderful. And they're really enabling me to be the person that I am today. And I just love it when somebody says that I, I said something or did something or had a podcast or they read my book or something and it helped them. Even, even if it's just a little bit, if, if I'm helping people, that contributes significantly to my happiness. So I'm, I, I really get what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, and I don't think it's unique to you and me. I think we all have that capability to, mm-hmm. you know, evolve ourselves to a different type of person. But I, I, I look back, Emily, and I get asked a lot of, you know, kind of, how do you do it? You know, and I, I don't think I'm special. I'm, and I'm sure you don't either. I'm just a dad from Iowa. That's what I like to say. I mean, I've just, but I've got, I've got attention deficit, which I love. And I'm very, I'm very structured. I'm organized in my mind. I mean, I, I, I very much know what I can and can't do. And I stick to my guns like that, but I've kind of developed this, what I call the three foundations of the living undeterred mindset, because I'm often asked about, you know, what have you kind of, what have you learned from all this, Jeff? And I used to just ramble, you know, but now I've got down, I've got these three foundations. So I'll give you briefly what they are if we're okay on time. Sure. So living undeterred basically is just this mindset that, you know, whatever life throws at me, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to be very grateful for what I have, but I'm going to take those, uh, those things thrown at me and they're going to be opportunities for me. Like I said, do things happen to you or for you? So these are the three First is expectations. And I think that's just a key one is that we go through life just expecting no one to ever die or expecting to find the perfect relationship the first time I date somebody or expecting to have the greatest job or the correct degree in college or just, we just have these expectations that are just unrealistic and unrealistic expectations is a recipe for disaster because nothing ever goes the way as planned. Never. And sometimes there's things that you do to yourself, like drugs and alcohol. And then there's things that happen like car crashes and cancer. You don't have any control over, but all four equal death. I mean, it doesn't matter. Someone still passed away. So expectations is my number one foundation. And that's just go through life with realistic expectations. And so, you know, you're a phone call away from the worst call you've ever gotten in your life. Every minute of every day, that's that negative visualization, which will make you more grateful for the fact that call didn't come. So you don't have to be paranoid. You just, you're more grateful now. Every every breath I take, I'm very grateful I have that opportunity to breathe. So that's one. Second is preparation. So expect the best, prepare for the worst. Well, preparation for me isn't really physical preparation. Like I'm going to go to Mount Everest. It's mental preparation. It's your, it's this box on your shoulder that I talk about. And so what are preparation? Well, mindfulness, meditation, reading, writing, exercise, you know, ever all that stuff. But to me, the key in, in preparation, Emily, is avoiding toxic relationships. Because if you think of yourself in the water and you're treading water and you have a toxic relationship holding under your ankle, it just pulls you right down. You know, and that's what we learn in scuba diving class when I was scuba diving is that if someone's having trouble, be careful because a lot of times they'll drag you right down. Mm-hmm. They're trying to save themselves and they're grabbing, they're they're grabbing. So even people that aren't necessarily toxic, there's still people out there that can drag you down. You've got to be very careful of them. Sometimes they're family members. And I wrote about the whole idea of unconditional love and how I'm not a real big fan of that. But so preparation, avoiding toxic relationships. 
So think of cutting the cord of somebody hanging on your ankle, how you would just pop right back to the water and now you're able to be pulled out. So I don't have any math on this, but I think for every toxic relationship you sever, that's like having five positive relationships in your life. So if you sever two, that's 10. You sever three, that's 15. So it's addition by subtraction. You're cutting out toxic people, but you're adding positivity to your life. So that's the second foundation. The third is probably my favorite, and that's evolution. Not evolution as in what people think of, but I'm talking evolution of self, your evolution of yourself. So a chapter in my book, I called evolution of self because what I learned about this whole thing was I really wasn't grieving. I was evolving. You know, I, grief to me just kept pulling me back to those moments where I was painful evolving as I'm getting away from it. I'm, 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 I'm shedding my skin. I'm evolving. So for me, it's expectations, preparation, and evolution. So I constantly want to be in learning mode. I constantly want to figure out ways I can help people make better choices. I'm constantly having dialogue with people. I'm constantly being vulnerable and I'm not the same. When I get off the show with you, I'm going to be a better person than I was before I met you. And I have that mindset. So I think if people had that and they were working on these three things before their son died, before their wife died, before they file bankruptcy, before their whatever happens to them, I just think you're building yourself up to be a stronger human being and you can handle things better when they happen to you instead of just being, oh, I can't believe someone died. I'm like, well, why? We all die. Why can't you believe someone died? They just didn't die in the order that you wanted. You know, and, and again, that's I, I, death is horrendous. I'm not downplaying it. If anyone knows, it's you and me. But you can certainly be a better human being coming from a different perspective of death. I, I'm, I'm convinced of that. And I'm, I'm living proof of it. And I'm not, I, I never made out a role in high school. I'm not a scientist. I'm not a doctor. I'm just a dad. Like I said, just a dad that's got a passion to live a very productive life. And I want to help people like you do, Emily. That's my life's calling, I guess. That's my purpose is, as Viktor Frankl said, his, his purpose was to help other people find their purpose. That's ultimately what he settled on. And I think you and I are kind of in the same boat. I get a lot of I get a lot of gratitude from a text or an email out of the blue saying, hey, Jeff, you know, I read your book or I saw your podcast and well, I'm going to look at what happened to me a little bit differently. That goes a long ways. It really does. It, it's huge. And I'm, I'm so grateful to be able to be that example to other people, to have them look at their lives differently than they did mm -hmm. before. And I've, I've had that a lot when one of the things that I do is help people with writing because I'm, I'm a writer. Mm -hmm. I've taught writing at the university level most of my career and still do, even though I'm retired because they keep inviting me back so I can do it online now, fortunately. Yeah. <laughs> it's the universities in California and I'm in Hawaii. But in that writing, they discover things. And if they didn't, write it, it, it would never happen. A lot of times people think about stuff and they think they're dealing with stuff, but it's just popping around in their, their head. Mm -hmm. But when they actually write it down, they go, oh, that's what happened. Or, oh, that's mm -hmm. what I was thinking. And they can, they can step forward. And it's, it's such a, a wonderful way to have people learn the value of taking care of themselves. Mm -hmm. I think self-care is the very first thing people need to do when they're in a situation of grief. You're so correct because I get asked all the time by people that will kind of innocently say to me, 
well, Jeff, it's great. It's great what you're doing, helping others. And I say, but what you don't understand selfishly, I'm helping myself first. Absolutely. And it's like on the airplane when the oxygen thing comes down and the stewardess or the, I don't know if you can say polit- politically correct. Not I don't know if I can say stewardess anymore. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to get canceled. So it's like, so the, 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 the airline attendant would say to me, uh, you know, before you put the mask on your children, put yours on first. You know, there's just so many metaphors like that. And, but yet this is where, this is where I have a difference with a lot of people on, on the concept of unconditional love. I, I don't believe in unconditional love. What I believe in is limitless love with conditions. So in other words, I will give you all the love that I possibly have. But if you, you know what to me over and over and over and over and over, I have to watch out for myself. You dragging yourself down, you're not taking me with you. And you know what? Say, say it, say it however you want to say it. I know some people are going to say that's not the way I'm going to do it with my kids. Well, that's fine. I'm telling you, I didn't feel that way when we were trying to save Seth. You know, I, it was adversely affecting me. I was mad. I was overweight. I was drinking. I was unhappy. I was, you know, I was just miserable because I was spending so much time, my wife and I trying to get him out of all of his problems. And I think, you know, I know, I know it's, I know it's admirable and it's, it's, it's romantic to say unconditional love, but if, but unconditional love is a self is it it's over before it starts because it basically says, okay, it's a one-way street. You can do whatever you want to me. I'm going to love you unconditionally. I'm like, that is the unhealthiest way to be. How many, how many women are in relationships like that that get taken advantage of, you know, get abused because they're unconditionally love with their husband, but their husband's an abuser. And, and, but, but they're romantically believing in the idea of unconditional love. I, no, I don't believe that. I just don't. I believe, I believe I have limitless love. I have a, a I can give unlimited amounts of love, but I have conditions. You have to respect me. And, and you have to be honest with me and not take advantage of me. You can have all the problems in the world and I'll be the best friend that I can, but you start taking advantage of me, then I got to go somewhere else. I got two kids. I got my dad still alive. I got three brothers. You know, I, I can't be, I can't be getting 10% of 10 people getting 10% of me. That just waters down my effectiveness. And so that's just something I came up with and I wrote a blog about it. And sure enough, you can imagine people thought I was off my rocker and, and, uh, thought I was insane and, well, I'd hate to be your brother. You know, it's like, well, whatever. That's fine. You know, I, I do believe in unconditional love. And most people do. That's why, I, that's why when yeah. I say that, I kind of preface it by saying it's a little confrontational. Well, I can understand it. I, I really do. But I can get to unforgettional love by forgiving people. Mm-hmm. Because I, I feel like it's not my place to judge them. And if they're doing something to me that I would prefer that they didn't do, Right. It's a lot healthier for me if I forgive them for it than if I, I keep, I think they call it worrying that they, they do like animals do when they get hurt and they, they just keep scratching and, and right at the problem and it just makes it worse. So right. if I can forgive something and let it go, then I can, I can be back in that state of love that is, uh, I think, a really good place for the world to be. Forgiveness is the key of everything. Mm-hmm harboring anger and and hatred and uh, letting go is again very subjective because when you're in a relationship with somebody who's a substance abuser boy what's the difference between letting go and and enabling and supporting you know there I get I, I talk to so many parents is like well my son is you know he, he's he's homeless I'm going to give him 50 bucks and but I know he's going to buy drugs but 
And it's just like, you know, and, and it's like, what do you tell a parent that's trying to save a child? But then the book says, don't be enabler, you know, don't, don't enable people. Well, I don't think there's a, there's a bridge that I don't think there's a fine line, you know, it says, this is the difference between an enabler and unconditional love. You know, I, I think there's, it, it kind of, it kind of morphs into both. I think that, I think it's very compatible with both of them. And, and that's where that's in my mental health mission I'm on, I'm talking to a lot of substance abuse and addiction families. And you've got that polarization of enabling where it's, you know, the fear is that I'm making it worse, but I love my son. He needs 50 bucks. I know he's going to go spend it on drugs, but what am I supposed to do? Just not let him have the 50 bucks. It's like, that's a good example of in substance abuse where we need to kind of figure out, well, first of all, there isn't a right answer. You know, I, I wish I could say there is a right answer, but there's not every family, every child is very unique in how they react to those things. But again, that's tough because, you know, I've thrown my hat into the mental health arena. That's, that's our tour we're doing in 44 days is a mental health initiative. It's not substance abuse. It's not suicide awareness. It's not overdose. It's just, it's mental health because that encompasses every walking human in the United States. And so in 45 days, we're, I bought an RV and my boys are going and we're going around the country. We have 38 states already uh, agreed to, st- to, to partner with us. Wow. Yeah. And it's 95 days. It's all on our website. It's www.livingundeterred.com and go on the tour link. And we have everything. We are going to do Hawaii and Alaska. We just don't have that scheduled yet. That's going to be our ending because I know Hawaii's got a, a big issue with mental illness and uh, especially um, overdose and, and drug use and alcoholism too. So our goal is to go in, on the road for 95 days, raise a million dollars, and we're giving half the money back to the states that partner with us, the facilities. And some of the stops we have, Emily, are so amazing. I mean, moms that run nonprofits, their son committed suicide. We have two gentlemen that run sex abuse facilities. Um, both these men were abused as ch- children and they came out in their fifties publicly. One's Dr. Wayne Coffey. He's got a book called no more stolen childhoods. And, you know, he's a big sex abuse advocate, but it's like, there's so many heroic stories in the United States and around the world that I want to go out and meet these people. I want to use our platform to turn the spotlight on them off me on them. And I want to hear their stories. And I think, 95 days speaking to thousands of people, it's going to be pretty clear that we're all in this mental health boat together. You know, you're not in a canoe or around in your own misery. You're in a big boat, you know, and we all have these challenges. I know in the grief business, it's easy to compare, right? Well, you lost a child, you lost a brother. Well, childs are more important because they're younger. It's like you play this, this comparativeness and I get it. I did it early in my grief thing that I did. But the reality is, is that my grief is unique to me. It's not better than yours. It's not worse than yours. It's unique to me. And that's all that really matters. And I may be able to handle two deaths better or three deaths better than somebody that maybe put their cat down. Mm -hmm. Maybe that is suicide for them. Maybe they just don't want to live. So you have to respect that everyone's relationship with grief in trauma is so different. And that's where I see a lot of people in quote, this industry where they're going around helping people. I think they're just playing the the wrong card too often, you know, trying to make it sound like their situation's worse. And I'm probably guilty of that early on. 
And now it's like, you know, I'm not downplaying what happened to me, but I, I meet people every day that have had worse things happen than what's happened to me every day. So that's humbling in itself. And I will tell you though, if I didn't have my two sons, I don't know if I would have made it. Yeah. I'm not sure. I have such a respect and love for parents that lose an only child or their only two kids or three kids. I just, that tears my heart out. I, I can't, I can't relate to that. Even though I've lost one, I can't relate to what it's like to have, to have none. I talk to my two boys every day, hours. I harass them. I send them heart pictures. I tell them I love them. You know, my, my middle son's six foot six and a half. And I kiss him on the cheek in front of his golf team every time I see him. And I said, dude, I'm going to kiss you every single day. I'm on this planet, you know, embarrass him. But it's like, yeah, I don't know if I would, I don't know if I would have done that had I not been through what I've been through. Yeah. That's that evolution of self. You just, be, you have to learn. We don't want to survive, right, Emily? We want to thrive. Absolutely. Who, who wants to just survive? Absolutely. Right. And I'm sure you talk about that. I listened to the podcast before the most recent one on your, on your site. I listened to it yesterday and it was a gentleman. I can't remember his name, but you guys had a really good, what's that? Rich Carlini probably. Yeah. Yep. And you guys had a really good conversation and a lot of the things in there, I was writing down some things because I think there's a lot of common ground between people that have found a way to become better. Mm -hmm. But then there's also a lot of common ground between the ones that want to be bitter. Mm -hmm. And I used to tell people, I can't tell you how to grieve, but I can tell you how not to grieve. Mm -hmm. If you're religious, maybe God, your answer. If you're an atheist, maybe it's meditation. Maybe it's yoga. There's lots of ways you can, you can grieve, but I'll tell you the ways not to drinking, smoking, drugs, lying, stealing, you know, McDonald's every day, you know, those are things that are deconstructive. Mm -hmm. We want things that are constructive. Yeah. And so grieving isn't, isn't necessarily finding the ways that work. You want to avoid the ways that don't. Don't. That's right. Right. It's a choice. It really is a choice. Right. It's, it's hard for some people to understand the concept of choice and in those circumstances, because they say, well, I didn't want this. And, and yeah, you didn't, but that's where you are. So now you can choose how you deal with it. I mean, look what you're doing. I mean, you've been through two traumatic, and I'm sure if you and I talked for hours, you've got more traumatic events yeah. in your life. We all do. People are only seeing what I'm talking about, but we all have these things happen to us. It's just part of the deal that you sign up when you're born. It's just part of the deal is being a human. And yet there is some common feature between the ones that have kind of figured it out. Mm -hmm. And that's what my quest is. I want to really figure out after the tour is over, what's those common features. And my guess is it's going to be similar to expectations, preparation, and evolution. But most people like, you know, I hate to talk about my wife in any disparaging way, because before our son died, she was the greatest mom and wife I could, I could have asked for, but her ways of dealing with that were deconstructive and it cost her her life. And she shouldn't be dead. She should be here right now. We should be doing these things together. But again, non-judgmental. Those are the choices she made. And there's a saying I like to say, choices precede consequences. And if you don't want to get drunk driving, then don't get in a car when you're drunk. It's like you just reverse engineer things backwards. 
And you take every chaotic event that's been the result of poor choices and you play them backward, you're going to say, all I had to do is just not go out my house that night. And I wouldn't have got in my car. I wouldn't have got pulled over. I wouldn't have lost my job. I wouldn't have lost my marriage. And, mm-hmm. you, and, and, and really that's how a lot of poor choices end up is just a set, a series of set of very small, bad decisions end up to be a colossal poor choice. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I'm thrilled with your choice about your tour. I want to hear about it when you're, you come back because it just sounds like such a magnificent thing to do. Yeah, we are looking at a stop in Hawaii. I may, I have some, I have a couple of clients that live there, but we're looking for nonprofits that work in the mental health, uh, substance abuse or addiction space. So I may, you know, in a few months reach out to you, you know, we'd like to officially go to Alaska and Hawaii, but right now it's the 50, you know, domestic right here states, uh, continental, I guess is the word. Yeah. Um, and, uh, that itself is going to be an adventure. <laughs> oh yeah, that's huge. <laughs> yeah, but again, like I said, I really admire what you're doing, and um, you're you're giving people another, you know, tool in the toolbox um, that they can listen to and get some good resource from. Well, I admire you too. It's it's being able to do work with this with like this with people like you. Just is. It makes uh, makes my world go round right now. So I'm I'm grateful for you being on the show today, and I'm uh, grateful to have been able to spend this time with you. And we will have uh, links in the show notes for this podcast with all all about Jeff and what he's doing and how you can get involved and, and where where you can get his book. So be sure to keep in touch with Jeff because he's a very special person, and there's there's a lot that you can gain from his wisdom. So thank you all for listening today and I'll look forward to seeing you again next week. Do you want more comfort, support, and happiness? Join the Grief and Happiness Alliance. Visit my website at lovingandlivingyourwaythroughgrief.com and read my book, Loving and Living Your Way Through Grief. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast, rate it, review it, and binge on all our episodes on grief and happiness. I can't wait to welcome you back to another episode.